are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything possible? Live from the home of Super Bowl champion Greg Jennings, more to come on that, it's the 252 uh, Sports Talk Radio is done by academics such as myself, Chris Garrett, and I'm Chris Moore, and, and I'm Sam Mulberry of Bethel University. Now, Chris Moore, we are now less than two weeks away from an actual class, not just a yes. podcast. Is it becoming more real? Well, it's definitely getting more real. Are you starting to feel a little hyped for this? Are you starting to feel a little nervous or both? I mean, terrified, right? Oh, okay. No, both. It's exciting and it's terrifying. We'll have to actually be educators. Excitifying. Excitifying. (laughs) Right. So, uh, but we do have uh, some time yet to just enjoy ourselves, just kick back. You know, spend 40 minutes talking to a former pro bowler who played for the Packers, the Vikings, and the Dolphins. That's right. Greg Jennings is in the house, or not yet, but he will be very shortly. Uh, so we're going to talk to a former professional football player. He was really good at what he did for a long mm-hmm. time about what that's like, how he got to that position, what a career is like that ends at age 32, what he yeah. does after that, specifically uh, journalism, media, mm-hmm. uh, and also his faith. We'll talk about what it's like to be a Christian in the NFL. So please join us. That's mostly what we're here for. But while we're here, we thought we should do a little bit of our usual shtick. We'll, we'll do a little sports history. We'll end with three to see before we leave. But I just had two kind of ongoing stories. I just wanted some quick hits from you both on. Uh, I'll do the really short one sure. first, actually. Uh, I've asked you this earlier this morning, so you're queued up for this now. Does the name Katie Sowers mean anything to either of you? It does for me now. Now? <laughs> After you told me. <laughs> Sam Mulberry, break down. Who is Katie Sowers, and why are we talking about uh, her? She's an, a, an assistant coach for the San Francisco 49ers. Right. And the uh, the important thing is the, uh, the pronoun she. I believe that's it. Yeah, so there was a commercial that played all weekend. <laughs> Did you find what? I can't product? remember what the commercial was. Was it for Michael for? Bloomberg? Uh, no. no, I think he's running for president. That did play all weekend. Yes, yeah. uh, I don't actually don't know what it's for, but it was it was about her. As I feel like, like she was holding a tablet, so I feel yeah, like it's like a, a Surface thing. Pro or something. Yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, so she is, I think, the second woman to ever be an assistant coach in the NFL, and now the first to go to a Super Bowl, hmm. uh, which by itself is significant. She is also the first openly gay assistant coach, I think, in NFL history. And she's a graduate of a Christian college. So oh, her really? mother was a nursing professor at Heston College, mm-hmm. which is a Mennonite junior college in Kansas, I yes. think. So she started there, and then she went to Goshen College, which is kind of really? the flagship Mennonite school in Indiana, which does not actually play football <laughs> for reasons we'll talk about in the class. Uh, Mennonites have historically been averse to that particularly violent sport. But anyway... Right. Uh, through an interesting series of events, she became an assist, offensive assistant, I think, yeah. uh, for Kyle Shanahan. Wow, can we get her on the show? We should try. I think we should definitely have her back. back. Right, we'll, uh, we'll, let her, we'll let her focus on the Super Bowl for a couple of yeah. weeks first. Okay, maybe a bigger story is what's going on in my favorite sport. It's only a few weeks till spring training, pitchers and catchers report. But the hot stove league is really hot. Because the Houston Astros got caught doing something. Uh, so something. Something. <laughs> so they were using technology to uh, to cheat in the year in the 2017 seri- season, which was the year they won the World Series. Chris, I think I understand this. Can you explain the actual allegation? I think the actual allegation is they're using cameras in the outfield to steal pitchers' signs, which they would then communicate back to batters in the midst of an at-bat. And I don't think it was anything more necessarily than like change up coming. So it was like look for off speed pitches, look for curve wide. Mm. It was something but that's simple, a lot. but it's a lot. It was like being a trash can, maybe buzzers. That seems uncertain, but that's a significant amount. Like the, the whole challenge of baseball, besides hitting a round ball with a round bat, is you've got point one five to point two seconds to decide. Mm. The chief advantage a pitcher has is he knows what he's throwing. You don't know what he's throwing, and if you know that a change up is coming, you sit on it. That's maybe how the Astros hit a few of those home runs in now, 2017. Now, we talked about this story when it initially broke. Are you surprised by – because we're talking now about the aftermath of that. Are you surprised by the aftermath? Well, that's why I wanted to get – so you've turned it on me. I was going to ask you all. So, I mean, if, you, if you're not aware, what happened is Major League Baseball investigated, suspended both the manager and general manager of the Astros, who very quickly were simply dismissed – by the Astros. Now, I assume they'll come back, but they still have to serve out their suspension. Uh, in addition, Alex Cora, who was the Houston bench coach that year and apparently quite instrumental in devising this, 
then moved to the Red Sox, who are themselves under investigation for their own cheating scandal. He was fired from his job. And former Astros player Carlos Beltran, who is probably on the verge of a Hall of Fame election, maybe, was fired before he even started his job, really, as manager at the Mets. Um, I... I think it's a fair punishment. I'll say I think this is a significant issue. The mm-hmm. rules were quite clear. Now, I think the complicating factor here is the commissioner, Rob Manfred, had decided along the way, and I don't know if it was for this or for an earlier episode, players would not actually be punished for this. They would hold the managers, general managers, maybe ownership accountable. I think Houston also has been fined and lost track. I think so, yeah. So players would not actually be punished for this. Uh, which I think that's, that's an issue we should talk about as well. Can, we, can I ask you, Chris, I mean, as a, as a deeper baseball expert than me, is this the kind of program of cheating that a player might devise? Could the manager really be innocent in this? Or is this really something that would have to co- – a manager would have to be at least complicit in? Well, I mean, not innocent. Like, it, I think it's been pretty well reported now that A.J. Hinch was aware of this happening, actually did try to stop it. Like, I think even like destroyed – some piece of technology. I mean, he actually, but he did not do enough. Like, it continued, mm-hmm. and so he was made responsible for this. Like, the buck okay. stops with the manager and then the general manager, who is claimed, I'm not a cheater, I had no knowledge, but it happened under his watch, and so yep. that's I think you have, baseball is held I think you kind of have to go that way just because – uh, if it's if 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 you if the focus is on the players, even if this originated with that, then the management uh, and general manager can always just sort of distance themselves mm-hmm. from it. Where this actually is telling them, you have to mind your mind your house. Like yeah. you being manager means something. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. And I, I don't. I'm, I'm interested that there is it because there's it, it was widespread enough in that clubhouse that they can't. They just couldn't do a whole – because it would be a team's worth of players, right? I I think that's part of it. I think they decided the more effective way would be to create substantial disincentives for people who actually control the clubhouses to – I don't know. I'm not – I mean, so part of the – I mean, I think we've talked about this before. Baseball actually has a significant cheating culture that is – um, respected in a way, Mm -hmm. right? Like there is nothing – You can steal signs. You can steal – so – Jose Altuve could take his lead off second base, stare straight in at the catcher giving signs, decipher the kind of complicated code they use once you get to second base. And the way it's usually done is you would you would you would lean a certain way, you put your hand on your knee or something. You could actually then signal to the batter. Mm-hmm. Now that play, that might break a kind of unwritten rule. Right, and and the pitcher might throw at your head the next time this happens. Um, but there's again, I've said before, there's some Hall of Famers like Robbie Alomar was kind of famous for being a great sign stealer, um, or even just like sitting on the bench. You watch the third base coach on your day off long enough, and you you, you can break that code and you know exactly what they're going to be doing. You can call them for a pitch out and catch someone stealing. Right, so. In a sense, like that's almost honored and rewarded, but there was a very clear line drawn because of the Red Sox have been using um, the the uh, where the watch thing Apple watches. Apple watches. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a long history of people using center field cameras to do this. Uh, Tony La Russa has been accused now of doing this by Jack McDowell from back in his White Sox days in mm-hmm. the mid '80s. He would use cameras like this. But that that's a pretty bright line, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way that gambling was a bright line that Pete Rose ran a follow of. This was a bright line you do not cross, and Astros got caught. Um, I mean, when we get to the discussion, then should they vacate the title? I've I've always had little patience for this. I don't know what that exactly means because Astros fans will regard this as it a, doesn't mean yeah, title. Yeah, yeah. But speaking uh, speaking as someone who uh, is a fan <laughs> of a team who had to vacate a title, yes. Um, what does that mean, Chris? Martin? No, absolutely nothing. Right. Everyone I know still still celebrates that as a one title. I mean, I think the the most interesting piece to me over kind of the long weekend was watching players in social media, current and former, respond to this. And most current players didn't respond to this. It was more former players. But it was kind of a mix. It was uh, anger at the whistleblower and Mike Fires, who, mm. by the way, was fine doing this for a couple of years, gave up a lot of runs in one inning, and then got upset and kind of spilled the beans and all this. Um, anger at like breaking a kind of code of the clubhouse, right? Um, you, you heard that kind of response, but what I heard a lot more of was especially former pitchers who were like, it is hard enough to do this job and you are taking money. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, people's ERAs were affected by this, right? Mm-hmm. And that affects the kind of contracts they get. It affects people being sent down to the minors. Like they, they are not content to simply kind of say, well, this is for players to enforce. And they were very strongly in favor of maybe even 
harsher penalties to stop this in the future. Hmm. So I have a feeling we've not seen the end of this. There have been some allegations that the Yankees have done things like this. The Red Sox investigation. Of course there have. seems pretty clear is going to reveal something because Cora is involved. That um, fits every aspect of my motivated reasoning to assume the Yankees are involved. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, maybe something we'll, we'll keep talking about as the year goes on. All right. But we want to save most of our time today to talk to someone who actually knows something personally about sports. Former pro football player Greg Jennings when we're back from a break. This week in sports history. St. Paul, Minnesota, January 21st, 2004. Jim Dowd and Richard Park of the Minnesota Wild set an NHL record, scoring goals just three seconds apart in the closing minute of a win over the Chicago Blackhawks. Dallas, Texas, January 24th, 1952. After the New York football Yankees fold, its players are reassigned to a new team, the Dallas Texans. The first major sports franchise in the Lone Star State, the Texans last only one miserable season, going 1-11. The Dallas Cowboys are founded in 1960. Jacksonville, Florida, January 25th, 1894. Despite the opposition of the governor, mayor, and numerous Christian groups, Jacksonville hosts a prize fight between heavyweight boxing champion James J. Gentleman Jim Corbett and British challenger Charles Mitchell. Corbett knocks out Mitchell in just three rounds, the only time he defends his title. Chicago, Illinois, January 23rd, 2011. The Green Bay Packers defeat the host Bears in the NFC Conference Championship 21-14. Wide receiver Greg Jennings leads the way with eight catches for 130 yards. Two weeks later, Jennings and his teammates beat Pittsburgh Steelers 31-25 to win Super Bowl 45. Approaching the two-minute warning here in Arlington over the middle. Caught. Touchdown. Greg Jennings. Rodgers looking left, comes to his right, Jennings, touchdown! The final snap of Super Bowl 45, the Green Bay Packers have won the Super Bowl. The Lombardi Trophy is coming home. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. We're back for segment two, which is a kind of conversation time here on the 252. Sometimes it's just the three of us uh, kind of talking about a topic, but better times we bring in someone who actually knows what they're talking about to talk about the topic. Always helpful, and, right? Uh, Chris, I think this is the one we've been most excited about since we started talking about the class because you happen to know a retired pro football player, and not just any retired pro football player, but a retired former Viking and Packer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like how you said that very... <laughs> just, a, just slide that in. Who's a pro bowler, Super Bowl champion, yeah. uh, now lives in town, uh, and has a lot to tell us about the uh, the life of a professional athlete, the arc of that kind of career, uh, and many other topics. And so because you know our guest, I'm going to let you introduce him and kick us off, and then well, I'll jump I'll, in. I'll just say this. I, I have to thank uh, my daughter, Sabrina, who is friends with... Um, with Ace and uh, <laughs> does, she, um, does she get an executive producer credit because of this? I didn't see how the negotiations ended. Oh no, we haven't negotiated. Sabrina that. cuts a hard bargain. Ex- she so, sure does. Yeah. Um, but through that, I got a chance to meet uh, Greg Jennings, and I'm so thrilled. Greg, thanks for being here today. Absolutely, I appreciate you guys for having me. So um, we're gonna we have some standard questions that we ask all of our guests, and we'll ask you the first one too, which is talk to us a little bit about uh, your own personal history with sports. How what did you grow up? Uh, when you were a kid, what were you playing growing up? Ah, so for me, man, sports started really at a young age. Um, not organized, just backyard. I had three other siblings. Okay. I'm two of four. And so basketball was kind of our staple. And I couldn't, I had an older sister, very athletic. Yeah. And she just beat up on me. <laughs> 
and it was almost detrimental to my success yeah. <laughs> moving forward. Older siblings are misunderstood. You know, they, <laughs> they just really, trying to help bring them up. I, right. don't, I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> but no, it was it was great for me because she really started my competitive drive mm. um, with wanting to beat her so bad. Just in the backyard when family would come over, she would always want to play one-on-one because yeah. she knew she would beat me. And it would drive me crazy because I could not beat her. And I'm just, you know, just that egotistical young male, mm-hmm. uh, young adolescent male where you just automatically assume I'm going to beat her because she's a girl. And it just did not work that way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's what my my career with sports kind of started okay. there, just getting beat every day in basketball, <laughs> wanted nothing to do with football. Truly, I was claustrophobic. Baseball was always afraid of the baseball. My first experience with baseball, believe it or not, um, I was with one of my older cousins, and he's trying to help me swing the bat. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dude, I got it, I got it. And one of my other cousins is pitching the ball, and we're playing with a real baseball. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to help me swing, and it just hits me in the nose, breaks my nose. I'm gushing, walking the house, blood's going everywhere. Never touched baseball since. (laughs) And so I'll, I'll really quick, really quick, I'll jump fast forward. So That's Ace, yeah. Sabrina knows Ace. So my first time taking him to a T-ball outing for um, one of the Vikings head trainers, Eric Sugarman. He's mm-hmm. like, Greg, come on, bring the bring Ace, whatever. I bring Ace. We get out the car. I grab Ace. We're walking to the field. Yeah. Ball comes over the fence, <laughs> hits the pavement, oh. hits Ace in the chin. <laughs> And I look at he starts bawling, and I'm like, "Son, this is just not for us. Like, this is just not our sport." <laughs> so I'll go so, back. So you did something safe, like football. Exactly. Right. You know. So at what point did football become the sport? Because uh, you're also the first person we've had on who has a Wikipedia page. So I know enough to know that you were pretty successful at basketball, track and field, and mm-hmm. football. Um, yeah, at what point did football really become the focus? Was that in high school, college even? Or? Yeah, football became the focus, I would say, really my senior year, uh, making a decision on whether I was going to uh, play basketball or football. Mm-hmm. I got more scholarship offers mm-hmm. uh, for basketball than I did football. But I had an older cousin at the University of Michigan who was a dual sport athlete in high school mm-hmm. and highly recruited in both sports. And I remember asking him, like, why did you pick football? Mm-hmm. And he says, there's 53 guys on a roster. Mm-hmm. If I'm not good enough to be one of those 53, I don't deserve mm-hmm. to play. Mm-hmm. Ah. And versus there being 12 roster spots on an, on an NBA roster. And it was, sure. you know, at the time, Allen Iverson was like the only six-foot point guard. And I could put the ball in the hole with the mm-hmm. best of them. But I wasn't – I wasn't doing all the crossovers that Allen was doing. I didn't have the ball, what I would classify, on a string, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so the decision really was was simple. Mm-hmm. Um, football was just something that I excelled at effortlessly mm-hmm. and ended up actually verbally committing to the University of Michigan. Okay. My junior year, um, we in basketball, my senior year, we went to the state championship game, played in that and for whatever reason, Michigan, they kind of start falling off hmm. me a little bit. And I remember calling and saying, what's going on? Are we still good with the scholarship? And they told me, pause. <laughs> this all happened. Like, I I sat down. Lloyd Carr is across from me. My dad is with me. We're in his office. Like, I am Michigan bound. It's the only place I ever wanted to go. So I have pretty much burned every bridge with mm. State, Michigan State, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, every other Big Ten school. Don't care about them. Don't even want to sniff their grass on campus. <laughs> like, I, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And so fast forward, playing basketball, there's a kid by the name of Braylon Edwards. Uh, I've heard of him. Who, exactly. <laughs> he played in the All-Star game, football All-Star game. I didn't play. I was playing basketball. And so he had a phenomenal game. They ended up offering him a scholarship, told me, well, we can offer you um, a partial next season Mm. 
but we would need you to come on as a preferred walk-on. And I'm like, what? Uh-huh. Pride. Yeah. But also just a belief that I, I'm, I'm better than a walk-on. And understanding my parents and their, the dynamic at home, my parents can't pay for school right now. And so Western, I remember Western always saying, Western Michigan University, their coaching staff always said, if anything ever happens, we'll just hold a scholarship for you. We'll have one for you. And that's kind of mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. End up going to Western and <laughs> football kind of became mm-hmm. the deal. Basketball, basketball never really was – I wanted to play. They off, They told me – asked me if I wanted to play basketball in college, but I had never had the opportunity to focus on one sport because play, I ran track, yeah. mm-hmm. played uh, football and basketball. And so I just wanted to see how far I could take and how high I could ex- excel at mm-hmm. one sport. Mm-hmm. And that's when football just became the central focus of everything. So at what point, maybe it was like as a high school player, maybe it was in college, at what point is a pro football career your ambition? And not even like as a dream, but like you're actually yeah, yeah, yeah. planning for a career in this sport as that kind of athlete. Um, I want to say my sophomore year in college, I remember we had a couple guys that were getting scouted and scouts would come to practice and – they you would kind of know when they were there. They, we had a player by the name of Jason Babin who ended up getting drafted in the first round um, of two of two thousand four. Okay, um, and so scouts were coming to see him. I'm not even on the radar. I'm I'm just a measly like red shirt sophomore, and I remember just looking like man. It's a lot of opportunity right here, mm-hmm. and so I remember asking my coach, like, "What are they just coming from ba- for Babin?" And he's like, "I mean, they really just come, they watch, they they scout. So if if you make plays in practice, they'll start watching you." And that's when it kind of clicked. Mm-hmm. Like I always wanted to play in the in the NFL, but when I knew it was going to be something somewhat of a reality was then because it was almost like I had someone that was in that world that was visible to me mm-hmm. that could actually see me and being what I would call like snubbed if you will not being on that grand stage mm-hmm. of uh the big schools like Michigan you don't you don't get those I felt like man I'm behind the eight ball so I got to work harder how am yeah. I going to be seen how and I felt like this is my moment. This is my opportunity. Mm-hmm. So my sophomore year, I had a great year, and then they started kind of. I started hearing like, "Who's fifteen? Who's fifteen? Who's fifteen? <laughs> that was my number in college, and mm-hmm. that's when I'm like, you know, I kind of took the the rearview mirror off and just went for it all. Oh, okay. Have you ever read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers? I have not, but I've heard about it. So, th- so he has this start. This kind of this comparison in there between people who or. He, People of all different walks of life who are in big pond, uh, big fish in big ponds versus big fish in smaller ponds, mm-hmm. and the, the different effect that, that that has on them, whether it's athletes or scientists um, or politicians or other kinds of people. But being um, someone who scouted at Western has a different; it produces a different effect than someone who's a hundred percent scouted at, at U of M or something. One hundred percent agree. I felt like. I had so much more to prove that there was no margin of error for me. Like there was no opportunity for me to cut a corner, mm-hmm. to not have a greater work ethic, have a deeper drive, like then and and for whatever reason Braylon and I have a great relationship, but he was always like that it for me. Like he took my opportunity once. It will never happen again. Mm-hmm. And I kind of looked at, I kind of saw him and then saw all these other guys at these major schools and universities that would just get noticed just because they were there. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I get it. That's what comes with that. But I want to get noticed not just because I'm there, but because I'm the best. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my drive. And that being kind of that big fish, if you will, in the small pond, like when we did play any major school, it was noticeable. It was on. Yeah. It was exactly. It was on. Like my ultimate, my primary focus was I'm going to embarrass who's ever across from me. (laughs) 
I'm going, this was my stage. Mm -hmm. Every time we stepped on the field, this was my stage. This was my opportunity to prove not just in mid-American play, but when we played a Big Ten school, when we played an ACC school, I wanted them to know that, yeah, I got looked over. And I should be playing at one of these schools, but I'm not. But I'm good enough to play against these guys, and I'm better than these guys. And that's really what got the scouts' attention because I always produced against those bigger-name schools. So we should move the story forward to the NFL. Yeah, we should. Um, maybe I'll just ask this as a broad question. What's something that even a serious fan of the NFL might not know about the life of a player in the NFL? Um. I, you know, I, I would say I, – I wouldn't say that a fan wouldn't know it. I think that they really just don't consider it. Hmm. And what they don't consider is it's work. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's work. And because of fantasy football, because of it being classified as a game, sure. a lot of people – and we've all played it as adolescents mm-hmm. – and it's just it's just a game. It's just a game. But when you get to that next level, it is a game. Mm-hmm. But it is my occupation now. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to create a career. Like it's it goes from like the average NFL career or job lasts three years, three and a half years. That's not really a career. That's a job opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. A career goes and extends over a longer period of time. And so the career life of an NFL player is already short. I don't care how long. Even 20 years or 10 years, which I played, it's considered long in the NFL, but it's a short career. Mm. And so when we go to work, it's everyone sees us as athletes and making millions of dollars and it's – you better perform and you look, we have families. Mm-hmm. We have real lives. We have real emotions. <laughs> like we are human beings. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think sometimes that gets forgotten and and not considered when with especially in this social media world that we live in, to where they forget that, look, this is my livelihood. Mm-hmm. This is it's a game to you. Mm-hmm. This is my reality. This is my life. Like, I, if I don't have this, then I have to go find something else. If you didn't have your occupation, you would have to go and find something else. Yep. So it's people forget that. And it, it become it can be frustrating because you have to always kind of take the high road. And you don't always want to, no, I suppose. <laughs> you know, yeah. but um, yeah, that's just co- what comes with the territory. Well, I, I was thinking about this because, I mean, A, I can't imagine having a career where everyone with a Twitter account or a blog or an opinion, you know, like, has something to say is going to comment on yeah. everything about you, your character, your performance, um, and that your kids might read that at some point. But also, I mean, we're a few years into our career, but we're like a third of our way through our career. We've got 20, 25 years left. I'm trying to imagine where I've spent ages, whatever, to 20-something preparing for a career that's going to last maybe 10 years if you're lucky yeah like how do you think i mean I, i'm sure like that plays into like when you're negotiating contracts right you, you're trying to maximize your what you're earning for that time but like is there a certain point along the way where you start thinking about what lies on the other side of the career when you start planning for it uh, what's it like to think about the arc of a career that ends after 10 years when you're 32 mm-hmm. when you ended and you've got a lot of life left mm-hmm. after that how how do you think through that when you're a player it really is. It's it's a challenge um, because just like for whatever reason, anyone, when you are where you are in life, it's really hard to see five, ten years down the road. It's really hard to begin to prepare five, ten, fifteen, twenty years down the road when it's like this is here. I'm here now. This is going to last. Mm-hmm. Even though you know like – from history and just looking at the landscape of careers, this doesn't last forever. You get into this mentality of, I'm just going to roll with it right now where I am until you hit kind of what I would kind of call adversity, if you will. So for me, or that kind of speed bump, my speed bump was 
my transition from Green Bay to Minnesota mm-hmm. to the Vikings. And it was like you think that you're gonna you your hope is to just be one place. Mm-hmm. When you go and seek for seek out a job, you're going and you're seeking out the best job. If you don't get it, okay. But you're you're not gonna start low. You just don't you don't sure, shoot sure, sure, low. Sure. You shoot high. And so when you're there, you're you're shooting high. You wanna stay there, you wanna remain there. And then when something happens and it's kind of pulled like the rug is kind of pulled from under you, it's like you gotta catch your balance and you gotta start responding and it kind of wakes you up to realize that, whoa, wait a minute. This is a business. Mm-hmm. This is no longer kidding games, fun and games. This is reality. And so your mind starts to change, hopefully, to where it's like, okay, I, I, I can't just, I can't allow this to happen again where I'm not prepared and my family isn't prepared. I, don't, I haven't prepared and put things in place to where my family is set up to where if this rug was to be completely pulled from under me, we have done what we needed to do to sustain a way of life, whatever that way of life is. And so for me, that was kind of that wake up call. And then again, getting released from the from the Vikings, it was an even bigger wake up call. Mm-hmm. And so for me, again, I was married before entering into the National Football League. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I had that support system. I had a wife who I can bounce ideas off of. I had a pretty firm foundation at home um, to where I could leave work at work. And then be Greg at home, mm-hmm. be dad, be yeah. husband. And so it helped me with my transition um, of preparing because every day I walked out of that facility, I wasn't walking into work. I wasn't bringing work home, so to speak. I did when the kids were younger, but once they started getting older, it was like, okay, I have to be more present. Mm-hmm. And in order for me to be present, I have to take care of business when when my work hours are there mm-hmm. and yep, get yep. done what I need to get done so that I can still perform at a high level. But then also now I got to make sure my family's good. And so a part of that making sure my family was good was taking care of business on the football field, financially understanding, look, there's just certain things that do we have it to do? Yeah. Should we really do this? <laughs> no, <laughs> because there's a, there's a certain life longevity to this that is not the typical longevity of a career and this has to last us for for a while until something else another stream of revenue comes in so that that started happening for me when I left Green Bay and then it heightened even more when I left the Vikings and went down to Miami Mm -hmm. and then it heightened even more (laughs) when I decided to shut it down and make the transition to FS1 Fox Sports and become a a broadcaster and analyst. Can we talk about that? I want to get back to the evolution of football, but before we get to that, talk a little bit about what that transition's been like. So a lot of uh, people in your position move into broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and talk about what the, what some of the skills are that surprised you as you made the transition from a playing career to a broadcasting career. Uh, so for me, what was interesting, I never wanted to get into broadcasting. Now, going back to college, um, my degree is in public relations with an emphasis, I'm sorry, organizational communication with the emphasis in public relations. Okay. Now, that's not what I intended (laughs) for it to be going into college. Okay. My passion, and still is to this day, is architecture engineering. Really? But being a student athlete, which athletes know you're an athlete student, and on scholarship, you are an athlete student. <laughs> you better you better have something that aligns with whatever the schedule is of whatever sport you're playing. Mm-hmm. And so that's where organizational communications comes in and a lot of criminal justice because those curriculums align with practices. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see this onslaught of and very few individuals have the luxury to become architects or have these other degrees, if you will, that they really want to pursue because it it conflicts with their on-the-field performances or practice times. So fast forward, for me, it was an easy transition. Interviews after games, 
was kind of your audition and you didn't you never knew it. So being just mm, charismatic, being able to speak, being able to answer the questions, mm-hmm. um, just being able to uh, convey a message and get your point across yeah. uh, and be kind of infectious with it, if you will, and kind of quick on your toes and, and have fun with this different media outlet members um, and embrace it. Yeah, yeah. That kind of prepared me for this transition of television and media and being becoming an analyst and being a broadcaster and being pretty effective at it because it's for me i don't really see the camera i just have conversation Mm -hmm. like we're holding these in our hands but it's like i'm not holding this i'm having a conversation so i don't let this kind of dictate my posture (laughs) or my distance you know what i mean yeah it's like it's here but it's not if there was a camera on it's there but it's not we're Mm -hmm. still going to have this conversation and it's hard for guys to really just shut those out mm-hmm. and just have the conversation as if we've been knowing each other forever and someone's listening and they want to hear some buddies just talk football or right. talk yeah, shop, yeah. whatever you want to classify it as. So to answer your question, the transition for me was simple and it typically is it's pretty smooth for most guys who understand how to answer questions and yeah, don't yeah. get caught up into the camera yeah, yeah. and get uncomfortable. Um, it's pretty a, It's pretty much a layup. Okay. So it sounds like you're headed on to the Super Bowl as part of your job. I am. And uh, you've been to a Super Bowl, and something I as a Vikings fan don't understand is you. <laughs> I think it's possible to win a Super Bowl. Is this correct? <laughs> this, this happens occasionally. So I, I have to I, ask a question actually on behalf of Sam Mulberry, our producer, because we only have three mics, so he can't ask it. But he wanted to know, and I think the background is uh, relatively few college players make it to the NFL. I think I saw it's like less than 2%. Mm-hmm. I don't know what percent of NFL players will ever make it to a Super Bowl and win a Super Bowl. It's got to be a pretty small number. Mm-hmm. You have been to the mountaintop. <laughs> That's right. And, and we're not in careers where this ever happens. There's not like a pinnacle achievement. Isn't, there's not a Super Bowl for college professors? Uh, apparently not. <laughs> this is it, actually, right here. Well, you, you, I guess, so I'm asking this partly just to help me understand what it's like in your chosen career to get to the very highest summit you can possibly get to and have that experience. But also, I wonder if it's something you've been thinking about as you now go back to a Super Bowl in a different capacity, if you've memories are bubbling up. But I, I guess that was a long way of asking, what's it like to win a Super Bowl as a professional So I'll player? start with this. Like, So because there's this ultimate goal, this pinnacle, this summit, if you will, that everyone wants to attain and grasp hold of it's like the ultimate pursuit and it's mm-hmm. like you can't get there by yourself you got 53 mm-hmm. 52 other guys i got that has to work like in unison to help you get there um yeah, and so, Farf wasn't really doing his share right? no or, right rogers, no, rogers like, they weren't doing their part you're kind of come on off, guys right? no and, and, and it's just it's like you just it's magical. Hmm. It just, it really is. It's like there, there are seasons where we felt like we should have gotten there, hmm. but for whatever reason, we just didn't. Hmm. And then it just clicks. It's like you have this feeling and it's, it's just this inner confidence and you can sense it in everyone. Hmm. And I remember when we got into the playoffs that year, uh, when we beat the Bears and we got in, we just knew, like we just it, we just knew, like going into Philly the first round. We were a sixth seed, and going into Philly, we knew we were. We just knew mm. we had this belief that we were going to beat them. Mm. We didn't have to say it, just knew it. And then going to Atlanta, we had gotten beaten by them early in the season. We just knew we like we couldn't wait to get there. Huh. Um, so, and I'll fast forward getting to the Super Bowl, playing in this game. It was like it was surreal, but. Mike McCarthy was the head coach at the time, and he did a great job of just really making sure no one played it as the Super Bowl. Hmm. Like, it's the Super Bowl. Making it as normal an experience as you can. This is the Green Bay Packers Mm -hmm. against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm -hmm. This is week, what, 19, Mm -hmm. 20 for us Mm -hmm. at the time. This is just another week of football. It's the Super Bowl for everyone who's attending the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. But right. this is a game for us. Yep. This is no different. And so everything was pretty much normal. 
Um, and so we didn't see Super Bowl. We now once we once they introduced the teams and we <laughs> ran out there and the light. I mean, it was it was different. <laughs> Lights are bright. It's mm-hmm. like your your adrenaline is just through the roof. Um, and it's like you're here. It's almost like surreal. But we knew. For me, I speak for myself. Snap out of that. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause it, it, it happens to everyone. I don't care who you are. You run out there and it's like, you're like, man, this is the Super Bowl. This is... Get out of it. Come on. Yeah. You gotta, mm-hmm. you, you can't become enamored with what's going on around you because the task isn't complete. Like, we're, we haven't finished this. Right, right. And so that was kind of what was intriguing about that. And then winning it, go straight to winning it. It was, so I remember standing, like, I almost got down on the sideline by myself because I didn't want to be next to anyone. And I was looking at the clock. I just remember looking at the clock, and it's like you you can imagine all these thoughts in your dreams or in your imagination of seeing this happen. And you've seen it happen in other games and other Super Bowl moments where you see the teams getting ready to, to celebrate and be, become excited and they're champs. Yeah. And I'm like, man. Don't false cry. Don't make a cry. <laughs> Just let whatever happened, emotion happen. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, tick, tick. And I'm like, <laughs> it seemed like it was going so slow. And when it happened, I just remember wanting to find my family mm-hmm. and share that moment with my daughter. My older two daughters were there at the time, my wife, my, my siblings. I just wanted to share that moment with them. Like, I didn't feel like a champion. I just felt like a relief, mm-hmm. like all this work mm-hmm. that I've put in from like a kid. Mm-hmm. This is why I did it. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it finally, like I get it. Don't get me wrong. You you play the game to make lots of money, to set yourself up mm-hmm. financially secure. But to play it and not win. Yeah. Like it's like you walk away and you feel like I didn't accomplish everything that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And having that opportunity to reach that pinnacle and actually win that game, no one could take that away from me. Right. Like, if yeah. I would have walked away after that game, I did it. Yeah. Huh. So, that sounds um, great. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, Chris, you, it'll, it'll happen. It'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah, I'm confident. It'll I, happen. I serve as Chris's uh, sometimes sports therapist. Um, <laughs> So. I'm sorry, I didn't go to the Ohio State University. No, after, I, don't, I don't know after, what this after is. After Greg going. mentioned that he wanted, to, he really wanted to play at Michigan. I wasn't going to bring that up. No, you know, no, it's like <sighs> yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, that's that's a, that's a, yeah. Let's skip past that right don't now. Don't need to talk about that. You had other questions. Let's move yep. on. Yeah. So, uh, with your perspective now, having moved uh, into the analyst's role and the broadcasting role, uh, especially for fans who are again those sort of those casual but attentive fans, Mm -hmm. what are some things that you would think might surprise fans in terms of how the sport has evolved? We know some of the big ways it's evolved, conversations about CET, Mm -hmm. um, but also uh, the increased political prominence that uh, players have had in in popular culture. But are there other ways the sport has evolved that might surprise people? Well, I think those are the two uh, most noticeable ways, Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, Concussions playing a huge part of whether guys want to continue playing. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see a lot of guys who get to the point to where they're really understanding my health is more important than making whatever X amount of dollars I could potentially make for this year. Yeah. My my well-being of being there and being present and being able to be functional, fully functional for my kids, my wife, my my family and friends is more important than sacrificing and for potentially foregoing all of that to continue playing a game that we all love. Um, and then on the on kind of the political side of things, yeah. it just it's it, it's all through it's all through the sport. And, and mm-hmm. I, I say sports, but I, I, I focus specifically on football, like. You look at, we can go back to the Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. uh, situation, the kneeling situation, and just beyond that, just uh, the the coaching hierarchy, the relationships. It's about who you know. Uh, it, there is this sense of um, kind of 
and, and to be real brash is like slave mentality hmm. of, you know, we don't, we just want these guys to play. And when I say these guys, particularly African-American men to just play, we just want you to play. Yeah. And I'm going to say this and I just remember feeling like this, like in training camp. And this is no knock on fans because they didn't make me feel like this. It was just a moment that I felt like, and I almost feel like we're in a zoo mm. because we were like caged in and everybody wanted to get at you. And it was like, you were like, you were the entertainment. Yeah. And I, I remember feeling like that, but being able to rise above that feeling and say, you know what, I'm, that, that's, but I know why I'm here. Mm-hmm. I know the platform is is huge. It's an unbelievable opportunity. The influence that I have, um, I'm a faith based individual, so yeah, yeah, yeah. my reasoning for being here is greater. And so I didn't let that consume me. And so when when I watched everything unfold with Colin Kaepernick, you know, choices, decisions come with consequences, good or bad. Mm-hmm. They all do. I don't care what whatever you choose to do, there is a consequence, whether it's great or whether it's not so great. And what Colin chose to do and the kind of domino effect that it had, it was a choice that he decided to make that came with consequences that he ultimately had to deal with. That ultimately impacted the game of football sure. drastically, the game of football. Because now, with the social media world, everyone has an opinion. And now players, particularly, want to now voice, and with liberty that we all have, that mm-hmm. opinion. But we're kind of pigeonholed to just staying in your lane. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's that's what almost provokes the conversation to come out of most individuals. It's like, so you're telling me I can't have an opinion on something that everybody has an opinion on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're want you want to point me out because I'm on television and I do this at a high level. So just do that. But you're at your occupation and you do that. And that's why they hired you. But you can have an opinion because you're not a public figure. But then if if one of them, it's like a lose lose because if you if you don't say something, then it's like, well, where are the players at? Where where are these people of influence? Why aren't they speaking out? Why aren't they? But if you say too much, then it's like they need to just shut up and play <laughs> football or basketball or yeah. what have you. So. You know, everyone has something to say about what whatever's going on in life. We've had the <laughs> I mean, when you get presidents speaking on your sport and talking about players and what ownership should do mm-hmm. with players, like the game is changing. Absolutely. And the game is being influenced by politic. And if you don't understand that, like you as a player specifically, because that's that was my role, you have to wake up and understand, look, I can't operate business as usual because business is not it's as changed. it's changed. Yeah. It's evolved. It's it's like let's be honest. You have to understand what to say, when to say, how to say it. Doesn't mean you can't say it, but you better be strategic on how you do it and how yeah. you deliver it. If you still want to continue doing what you're doing, because they will start to pull the plug on and there's nothing we can do as players. And that's the frustrating part about it is being in a position and not being able to kind of climb that what we would consider the corporate ladder in that profession of ownership Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where we now control what is going to be done and how it's going to be done. Mm -hmm. And we're no longer being just told how we're going to do things. We're now empowered in telling and doing it the way we want. I'm really interested in this. I'm interested in how um, different parts of American society, whether it's athletes, entertainers like our current president um, or others are allowed sort of into the public space. 
and are granted authority in the public space. Mm-hmm. Um, and when and and also when sometimes people are excluded or or um, who are previously part of the public conversation are are then prevented from being part of that or or having their uh, their authority discounted. Right. Um, so I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by. Um, I think I associate this more with basketball than I do with football, but I think about the, what we call the player empowerment era, mm-hmm. and I think this is a feature of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it makes me wonder if this trend continues, if this evolution continues, will we see um, increased political activism uh, through sports? And I wonder what that will end up looking like. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at one of the main figures in sport, LeBron James, sure. in creating... Uh, this platform uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. The reason why that is, look at the name uninterrupted. He wanted this platform to give to players, give to athletes who constantly have has the narrative shifted, altered, changed by media. Mm-hmm. By and it's and I told my wife this the other day. Because, you know, I still go through it and I'm in media, but I'll do a podcast or I'll do a radio interview. And the worst that I I pretty much will never do anymore is a conversation where you're going to write an article. I'm done doing it Mm -hmm. because you're going to take my words and you're going to spin it and you're going to write the story based on what you were coming in with the mentality of how you want to configure this story. You already have an angle. And so what I say only gives you nuggets to kind of plug ammunition in play. And so there was this article that came out like just last week. I did something at Bleacher Report and I'm talking about it's a start. It was a game we played. It was fun light. Like this wasn't their intention, but then people took it and spent it mm-hmm. where it was stardom, sit'em, or start them, bench, sit them. And so we did it with my football career. We did it with, like, my acting credits and shows that I had been in. Like, what start? If you, I did Criminal Minds and Royal Pains and The League and all these things. And they were like, start, them, start one, bench the other, and cut the other. And so then they did it with, obviously, sports and quarterback. Brett, Aaron, Teddy Bridgewater. And I'm like, Teddy Bridgewater. I'm starting Teddy Bridgewater. And then I'm like, I'm just messing. <laughs> I would start Aaron. And then I said, wait, 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 wait. Am I playing? <laughs> and then I went on to say, okay, if I'm playing, I'm starting Brett. And I explained why. And then I said I would bench Aaron and then I would cut Teddy. And I, <laughs> Teddy, you would cut you if these two were in front of you. You know, I was just joking. <laughs> but because of my relations and what I had, my kind of back and forth with the Packers and Aaron and all of that, it, what all everyone took away was Greg picks Favre <laughs> over Rogers. Wait, are we going to talk about <clears throat> what that what it what was encompassing everything? Like my why? Like you know, so you can kind of spin it. So when it comes to just being able to control your platform and what it is you want to say, that's why. LeBron started uninterrupted. Yeah. I don't want anybody to change and alter whatever is about to come out of my mouth. Yeah, yeah. Because I just wanted to I wanted to I want to say it how I want to say it. You can interpret it the way you want to interpret it, but you're not gonna try to spin it. Hmm. Because you'll always be able to refer to what I said, it's on camera, it's you know, it's just I if these were my words, not something that you had the opportunity to write down and then spin it. That's why players are starting to create their own platforms and develop their brands and understand the importance of their brand and making that a priority over sometimes whatever team that they're on. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe one more direction to take platform. You'd mentioned in passing that you're, you're faith-based, right? You're, you're a Christian. Absolutely. So let me start with this. Uh, because you are given a kind of platform, and it's a challenging one to use, but it does give you a kind of position out in public where you can reach people. Yeah, how did you think about um, being a Christian in public in that sense? Like, did you feel like uh, your role was to use that platform 
to proclaim the gospel in some way, to tell your story? Did you feel like that was uncomfortable or inappropriate? How, how did you reconcile it as a Christian, given the platform of star pro football player? Or even um, today, as someone who's yeah. in the media, who has a Twitter account, for all, sure, all the rest. You know, my, my ultimate desire was just for God to just use me and allow me to be me. Hmm. And I didn't want to become whoever people wanted me to become. I didn't want to try to convey a message or preach to people uh, and evangelize. Like, my ministry has always been marketplace. Whether I knew it or not, it's always been marketplace because that's where he has me. And so I wanted my life to resemble my faith. So where, however you saw me, you saw me with my family. You saw me being present. I didn't always have to quote scripture. I didn't always have to be in a church for you to say, oh, man, Greg is a man of faith. He's a Christian. He's this. He's that. I wanted you to see my lifestyle. I didn't. And if there was an opportunity that created itself and we can begin to talk about our faith in scripture, then, of course, I'm, I'm going all in. I've been like very transparent in within the locker room, um, outside of the locker room, but I've always been me and I've never been an aggressive individual. I will speak truth when I know it's time and when I know you've extended that platform mm-hmm. for me to speak it, but I'm also one that takes ownership and understands that I'm not going to abuse it. I'm not going to judge you because <laughs> look, I've I've done it. I've experienced it. And I believe my experiences have become now my ministry. And it's not for me to look at you and say, hey, man, don't that you shouldn't be doing that. You, it's for me to look at you and say, come here, let me let me let me talk to you. Let me tell you what I experienced when I was doing that. And so that for me has been the biggest level of growth when it comes to my faith and my walk. And I. Again, my wife and I we talk all the time and and I I I'm very I'm very hesitant um if you will when it comes to touching individuals with with influence and what I mean by that is <clears throat> people like myself that have uh followings and celebrity status uh athletes be- because you have to you have to meet them where they are. You have to understand how to penetrate them, and you can't come just full force smacking them in the face. Yeah. Um. So I, I come low. Yeah. I, I that's just me. It's like it, but it, this has always been me, regardless of the individual, which is why I'm sitting here. Like I was asked to do this. Yeah. Like, I didn't know you. Nope. Like, I, you know, my relationship with Chris more is is just based on our interaction in school with yeah. our kids. Like, but it, I don't look at myself as this mightier than thou. I, 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 ultimately, I'm a servant, and it's like, okay, someone is in need. They they made a request. I can say yes or no, but how I say yes or no is in my the way that I think, that's ministry. That's mm-hmm. that re- reflects my posture, my faith. That reflects who I am. If I just said no, I'm good. The way that I the way that I either accept or decline will leave you with an impression. Mm-hmm. The impression that I want to leave on people is, man, that's a genuine, authentic individual. Mm-hmm. Ultimately. That's who my Lord and Savior is. Mm-hmm. And so, like, for me, it's like I come low. Like, there's one scripture I lean on all the time. It's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's in individuals, whether it's rage and all this, and I think everyone to the core of them, are, we're just all good. Sometimes we might not act like it, but we are. And so for me, I'm just one of those individuals that typically always, regardless of what's said, what's done, I'm cool. I'm good. (laughs) I'm good. Because I'm always thinking of, you know what? It's not worth it. It Life is too short. My mother used to always say that to me, and I didn't understand it when I was a kid. (laughs) And now the older I get, 
you know, you say what you're going to do given a situation that you see or someone's in. It's like, man, I would have done this and I would have done that. No, you really don't quite know how you would handle it because you don't know what's going to really kind of activate and wake itself up. Now, I look at it two ways and I know I'm getting deep. Like either Greg, you're going to encounter Greg or you're going to encounter the spirit, man. Like my, you're going to encounter God. And I would prefer you to encounter the Christ that's in me versus just Greg. You don't, because Greg might do some foolish things. Greg <laughs> might say some things that aren't. So, and, and in saying that, my faith has been the staple. It's, it's why my career was the way it was. It's why mm-hmm. my, my lifestyle that's projected, it's the way that it is because I always considered my faith to be at the forefront, to be the foundation. And without that, I wouldn't be sitting here. One of the things that I've been struck by as I've been working with Chris Garrett's on prepping for this class, you know, he's a historian, I'm a political scientist, so I tend to think in the in the contemporary and in um, contemporary institutions and systems of governance. And what Chris has been showing me is, is the way that um, Christianity has been so influential in the way that American sports have shaped have, mm-hmm. have been shaped, and the role that um, uh, the church has played, the role that different churches have played, even in institutions like football. So we had a uh, we, we've talked about uh, evangelicalism in Florida foot, Florida high school football mm-hmm. in a previous podcast. Um, you're in a unique position to talk about what that looks like in the locker room, and what you just described is something really. Uh, consistent. You talked about football being your, an occupation, a career, um, and a job, and not just a game. Mm-hmm. And then you also talk about how you see yourself as a minister in the marketplace. And those two things are really consistent with each other. Is that true of other Christians in the locker room? It's not always true with others, but what I've learned is everyone has their path. Everyone's okay. on their journey. And it looks different. And if I were in in the judging seat, <laughs> everyone would be just destroyed. But but I'm not. And I, I've learned to meet people where they are and not to always find the negative hmm. that seems to always jump out glaringly right away when we meet or encounter someone or we see someone doing something that we wouldn't do. It's like, whoa, what are they doing? I try to really connect the dot and, and say, why would they do something like that? Like, what would make them do that? Yeah. You know, it, it, and, and again, I don't always do that. But for the most part, specifically in locker room, I had to become mature to say, you know, people, people can only give what they have in them. And so they only do what they know. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the less you know, the less you'll do. The more you know, the more you'll do. And so whatever your your faith is, whatever your religion is, the more you know about it, the more you resemble that. The less you know about it, the less likely you are to resemble that, which will to some some people say, well, he's not really Christian. Hmm. Well, you don't know how much they know. You don't know where they've been introduced. You don't know the depth of where they are. So. Who am I to say somebody could be just being introduced and I, here I am because they're using language that I tend to not use or they're acting the way that I wouldn't act. I'm, I'm passing judgment, but I don't know their experience. I don't know their journey. I don't know where they are on their path and in their process. And so that's kind of been my approach with life is like, I'm going to meet you where you are. I don't don't be who you are because I'm going to be who I am and who I am. You may not like. Who I am, you may love, but at the end of the day, I will respect you for who I who I met and saw you as. And then when you don't see that I see you, you act the same way. I respect that. Yeah. Well, Greg, I've got about a billion other questions, but we should respect your time, and yep. maybe we can just talk you into coming to this class sometime, <laughs> talking live. But uh, be that as may, I'm glad you did say yes to do this because yes. it was so insightful and um, so helpful to us. So thanks for taking the Pleasure. time to talk to us. I appreciate you so guys having me. I do. Okay, appreciate we'll be right back to wrap up this episode.
Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. I don't think there's any tape left after that very long but very gracious interview with awesome. Greg Jennings. So quickly, awesome. let's do three to see. I'll go very quickly. For, as we look ahead to the rest of January, I'm going to talk about my favorite sporting competition. Not. Do we still do that? The not. You just did. You just did. <laughs> the Winter X Games return to Aspen, Colorado, January 23rd to 26th. Buttermilk Mountain. That sounds which, delicious. Which is a wonderful <laughs> mountain, I guess. Well, it was competitions and everything from snowboarding to snowmobiling to snow biking. That's a lot of snow verbs. Plus concerts by electronic stars, Illenium and Alesso and chart-topping singer-songwriter Bozzy. Have you heard of any of those, Sam? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's go on to important matters. I'm going to flip the script this month and offer a don't see. Please don't watch the NFL Pro Bowl on January 26th, a.k.a. my birthday. The selection process makes no sense. The players are mostly concerned with avoiding injury. The owners are mostly concerned uh, to continue the practice as a cheap cash grab. If you're a fan of the Ravens and the Saints, their players represent 23% of all the selections, which are voted on by the fans. This whole thing is rigged. Watch the NHL All-Star game the day before if you really need an All-Star fix. It's really a long way, though, just to solicit birthday presents, right? What, when is your birthday? January, January 26th. 26th. Okay. Same. Well, uh, I am going to flip the script back around and say that you should watch the NFL Pro Bowl on January 26th from Camping World Stadium in and Orlando, And skip Chris Florida. Moore's birthday? Why? I mean, it probably is the worst major and probably minor professional sports all-star game. But you should watch this in honor of our outgoing Bethel University president, Jay Barnes. One of my favorite insights into the life of Jay Barnes came on February 11th, 2008, when our then office manager, Barb Barnes, Jay's wife, got home or got to work on Monday morning and asked if I was proud of, quote, my guy winning the Pro Bowl MVP last night. My guy turned out to be Vikings rookie running back Adrian Peterson. Of course, I had no idea he won the Pro Bowl MVP because, I mean, who watches the Pro Bowl, right? (laughs) At this moment, I realized that Jay and Barb, who I knew were big football fans, were actually the biggest football fans because they're the only people I've ever met who watched the Pro Bowl. So this year, in honor of Jay's long career at Bethel, you too should check out the Pro Bowl. What's the worst that could happen? Uh, I stand corrected. Go watch the Pro yeah. Bowl. Did you see, I assume you saw the Rob Lowe picture from, yes. with the NFL hat? I'm just imagining Jay and Barb. One has an NFC hat, one has an AFC hat with the jerseys <laughs> yeah. next to each other on the couch. Uh, oh, guys, thanks, fun. This was fun. We'll have to do this again sometime. We'll see. You. We'll be honest. We're not quite sure what the future of this podcast holds once we're investing just a little bit of energy in, you know, education. Actually teaching such. the class? If I have any say, it's going to it's gonna keep happening. Well, then it'll probably happen. So until then, uh, this is Chris Garretts with Sam Aubrey. Chris Moore, why don't you take us away? On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, uh, thanks for listening. You can always get in touch with us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, go Royals. Go Royals.